we were just giving people a couple of minutes to... And actually, it's filling up a bit since we started, isn't it? <laughs>
I'm afraid we can't promise the quality prizes offered by family fortunes or even bullseye, but those who do participate will have a rich, rewarding and fulfilling experience and may go home with, with a little treat. So please, six volunteers to begin, six brave souls. Thank you. Five more. Okay, we have two team captains. One more person, please. One, two, three, four, five. Six. Excellent. Just like to divide you into the two families so we can split you down the middle. And to invite the, the father or mother of each family to come over here first to begin with the first question. <laughs> so I'll place my here. We don't have high-tech buzzers, so what I'm going to ask is that your team, if you know the answer, yeah. shout out Lockheed. So can we try that? Lockheed! Lockheed! Can we hear? And you'll be shouting Boeing. Boeing! I'm going to need the help of the audience to help me identify who is the first person to shout either Lockheed or Boeing. So, this is, as in Family Fortunes, the first question I'll ask. Please shout as loud as you can if you think you know one of the top five answers, and then your family gets to take control of the game and to try and guess the next questions, okay? Understand? So, Martin, can we have the first question, please? Shout it. Is it better if I just speak like this? Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Yes. <laughs> no. Just hold it further from your face. <laughs> <laughs> Lockheed. Now <laughs> we started. Wait, wait. I can say. Okay, so according to the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, <laughs> technology failed. Interesting. Don't know. Guaranteed to go wrong. Don't know what's happened. No, the connection is fine. That's the power, which might have been the problem, but isn't it? <laughs>
think that, that, um, the, the, the PowerPoint yes. is so apologies for the technical fault. Are you ready? Are you ready? So the question is, according to the Stockholm International Peace Research, who were the top five arms exporters during 2010 to 2014? Lockheed. Britain. Britain. Okay. Is the UK up there, Martin? So, it's past you to guess. Uh, the US. Is the USA up there? Yes, the USA is the top answer, accounting for around 31% of arms exports during 2010-14. Does your family want to guess the other four top arms exporters? Yeah, are we passing over to them? Yeah. Yeah, please. <laughs> <laughs> so, can you think of one of the next four top arms exporters? Russia. Is the Russian Federation up there? The 2010 to 2014 accounted for 5% of global arms exports and a really big increase of more than 100% compared with the period 2005 to 2009. So, Martin, can you reveal the other two answers? <laughs> they are <laughs> Germany, again with just around 5%, and finally France, also with 5%. The UK was pushed out of the top five recently by China. It used to be fifth place, and now it's in sixth place. So, thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much for your effort, and I've got prizes here for the teams. Thank you. Thanks very much. So, after that, that brief test, and I hope you'll, some of you will get an opportunity to have sharing the rewards, I thought we'd start by just briefly introducing some of the, the challenges, perhaps, for identifying what constitutes the arms trade, which I think lead, then leads into interesting questions about how can we control it, how much do we know about it, and how can we monitor even affect a uh, change in the international arms trade. And so, my presentation, and I hope part of the discussion we have today, we'll try and address these three sort of general questions. And the first one is, you know, what do we mean when we say arms, conventional arms, the arms trade? What is it we're talking about? And I'll try and pose a few queries, questions, um, surrounding the challenges of identifying what it is 
that we argue constitutes the international arms trade? What are the items? Secondly, I'll briefly touch upon some of the challenges that flow from this first question in terms of how to control the trade. How is it that governments, industries, can sort of seek to ensure that these arms don't go into the wrong hands, should we say, that we're not encouraging irresponsible arms transfers, about which Martin will talk a lot in his presentation. And then finally, I'll talk a little bit about my own personal experience at CIPRI in terms of the source of information that we used to try and monitor the international arms trade and provide information that we hope can make it more responsible, more open, transparent, and accountable. And from the basis of that, I think it leads in quite nicely to Martin talking about the impacts and global efforts to try and establish high common standards to control the international arms trade. So the quiz part continues a little bit with please just put up your hand if you think you know what this particular item on the slide is. Okay, let's shout it out, it's an AK-47. So I assume that most of you would say, yes, we assume that governments should be controlling the export of this. It should be in the hands of people who we think know how to use it, are not going to use it for human rights abuses, violations of international humanitarian law. I assume that this audience thinks that's a very good idea. We should limit its circulation, and we should ideally know to whom it's going, who's, who holds these items, who they're being to supply to. But what about this item? Does anyone know what this is? It's an X-20 air rifle. So, again, we, some people might think that this should be controlled, it shouldn't be allowed in the hands of all, but it's a fine line. Whereas the AK-47, we agree, should definitely be controlled. There are differences in national practice with regard to items such as this in terms of their export and civilian possession. So we, we'll agree that it's a weapon that is a gun, but again, there's, there's distinctions and differences in terms of interpretation in different states about who can own, who can possess these items, and also permission to export, import, and transfer such items. Now I guess some of you were in this morning's session and could potentially identify this particular item. Does anyone know what type of drone it is? Yeah, it's an armed reaper, a version of the Predator drone, the MQ-9. So again, this is an item that I think we all agree this shouldn't be in the hands of everyone. This isn't a toy drone that you can buy down the shop for Christmas. This is something that we think should be strictly controlled, both in terms of its transfer and its use. But what about this item? Yeah, who thinks that the export of such an item should be controlled? We should be monitoring who has this type of aircraft. Okay, we've got one person's hand up. So this is the same aircraft supplied to the Iraqi Air Force for intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance purposes. And this is where I think it becomes a bit of a challenge and certainly something we at Cipri discussed was with regards to, although it's not an armed aircraft, it certainly contributes to conflict, it certainly facilitates uh, the infliction of harm, provides intelligence, reconnaissance, surveillance, and other techniques that can help with making the delivery of arms and munitions more effective. So again, you might think that these are some items that you would also want to control because of to whom it's going. Not necessarily that it's armed, but it's who's going to use it and the potential applications of such an item. Back to an easy one. This is a MI-24 attack helicopter. 
produced in the Russian Federation, supplied by Russia, Ukraine, and other states in the former Soviet space, and a very popular item in the armed forces of sub-Saharan Africa, seen in a lot of conflicts in the region, and maybe Martin will also talk about several conflicts in which such aircraft have featured. But what about this item, also supplied from Russia? It's an MI-17 helicopter, which can be armed, which can carry military personnel, but in this current configuration is a medical helicopter. So again, there's questions there in terms of the, the way in which the item is to be used could influence the way in which we categorise it and consider whether it should be controlled or not. The limits and moment to place on the supply of items to whom we're going to be delivering these items. So thinking about the item and to whom it's going is tend to be a classic approach in risk assessments in many of the major exporting countries. Not just identifying an arm, but to whom it's going. And in some cases, items that are not armed, that are not capable of delivering uh, harm, lethal harm, can also be controlled and classified in this way. Okay, can anyone identify this very practical, beautiful looking item? Yeah, it's correct, a Toyota Land Cruiser. Again, would we think that the supply of such a flatbed truck should be controlled? Is it a dangerous item? Do we think it's going to be leading to conflict, facilitating conflict? Perhaps not in this form, apologies for the shading, but when mounted with a multiple launch rocket, a multiple lock, rocket launcher, as shown here, a pimped up uh, Toyota Land Cruiser in Misrata, Libya. And also we see this again in different conflicts very often um, equipped with anti-aircraft guns or heavy machine guns, you can see these civilian intended items being put to military use, in many cases by uh, armed forces or also by rebel groups. So turning what is it, by all intents and purposes a civilian item into uh, a military item, into uh, something that can deliver lethal force, a weapon. So you know, should, we be, should we be controlling the supply of large quantities of Toyota Land Cruisers to car dealers in Libya, Sudan, is a question that you know, sometimes gets posed. And I believe that in the UK there have also been discussions around Land Rover supplies for exactly these kind of uses too, in terms of how they're utilised and for what purposes. So the first question then that I sort of asked myself is, you know, what are the arms in the arms trade today? And I've tried to show you, you know, a small sample of those items that are very easy to identify because they cause harm, can deliver lethal force, but also some other items that are not so easy to identify or which are perhaps not intended for delivering lethal force, but which can be equipped or utilised to enhance uh, arms and the delivery of weapons, especially light weapons in several of those cases. So it's not always an obvious question. We see also the list of items that are classified as being subject to control going beyond just you know, machine guns, combat aircrafts, warships, and the like, to also include things like radars, to also include items that can enhance the lethality of items. So this is something that we have discussed a lot at CIPRI, and which also is discussed by a lot of states in terms of what they should be controlling, what they should be paying attention towards. I mean, the other issue comes down to also what is being transferred. Now, most of the images I showed you were of what we call complete systems. You can see the whole thing, you can clearly identify it's a tank, it's a combat aircraft, the power's gone again. Um... <laughs> okay. 
Uh, we, we can clearly see what, what's, being, what's being transferred in these cases. But one of the things that we noticed when I was working in Cypri is that on a lot of the arms trade today, it's not about the easy to identify big tanks, big warships, combat aircraft. It's parts and components. It's items that can help actually to manufacture these technologies. As many importing states are not seeking to import a complete system that may be produced here in the UK by BA Systems, but maybe the technology, maybe the blueprints, maybe parts and components from the UK to en enable them to produce that item in their own country. And a lot of what we look called licensed production arrangements or technology transfers make up a vast amount of the international arms trade today, as many more states are seeking the means to produce their own weapons and not always to rely upon the major supplies we saw on that first slide today of the US, um, Russia, China, Germany and France. And indeed many of the shares of what we call the exports of those countries is in the form of license production or assistance for another country to actually put equipment together themselves. So this, this sort of transition perhaps from the, the early Cold War years is something that's worth noting. And certainly we see in a number of Southeast Asian states, uh, but also South Korea, you can also talk about Israel, states that weren't necessarily mentioned on that slide, but playing an important role in the international arms trade today and could be emerging as potential important supplies in the future. So something to watch is that although the top five major suppliers on that first slide have been there for a very long time, you know, since the Cold War they've been the familiar faces of the major arms exporters. Their share is shrinking and the way in which they interact with their recipients is changing. So how the transfers are taking place, it's important to think about that too. So this also leads into implications in terms of who to control and monitor. So we've got states, armed forces, arms producers, but characters such as Victor Bauer, the intermediaries, that I'm sure Andrew Feinstein will discuss today when he talks about the shadow trade. Again, it's also important that these figures don't always get shown in the major light. You can see who the major producers are, but the glue, the, the oil for the wheels is not always so visible. You also have the transportation agents, major companies that facilitate these, uh, these deals, enable them to take place, and also even financial um, institutions. All of these are important aspects of the arms trade that we can discuss more to where the control should end, where the oversight should end. So I think that addressing these questions, trying to answer them, is important to think about controlling the international arms trade. The next slides are going to be full of jazz images and you know fantastic, really interesting videos that I will need to speak. But I'll try and fill in with, you know, there's a range of, of sources of information that we used at CIPRI. One of them was since the end of the Cold War, a lot of more states were more transparent and open about what they're actually exporting. So we had a large number of states producing national reports on arms exports. So you could see, you know, and the UK is one of those countries where you can see it published each year what it's exporting and to whom. But you also had an international level, United Nations Register of Conventional Arms where states gave information about what they were exporting and importing in terms of the big, nasty-looking items, and more recently, small arms like weapons. So you could get a sense of the international dynamics of the trade, but also get a sense of, you know, the states were being open and, and were showing what they're doing. So overcoming some of those old <coughs> discussions about, you know, I don't want to provide information about what I'm importing because it will undermine my security. However, in recent years, and you know, coincidentally since the discussions on the Arms Trade Treaty, which is intended to increase transparency, responsibility, and accountability, we've seen a decline in reporting to the instrument, and primarily by the importing states. 
the top five states that were on the slide, they've all been pretty regular uh, reporters for the UN Register of Conventional Arms. You can see what tanks, what combat aircraft, uh, what warships they've been exporting into whom. But the importers, there's a much uh, fewer number of the states that the major importers are utilizing this instrument. So we're still relying upon a small number of countries to give us a lot of information about the arms trade. And that's where CIPRI and also the Norwegian Initiative on Small Arms Transfers came in, filling in the picture, filling in some of the blanks, using open source information uh, gleaned from uh, defense industry magazines. It's also amazing how much information arms producers give about what they're producing into whom. So there were different ways in which we could pull together that picture and try and fill into the banks and provide a more comprehensive image of the dynamics of the international arms trade. And in particular, how we owned those complete systems to look at other parts and components and important collaborations where a tank didn't necessarily leave country A and arrive in country B. It was built in country B but with significant help and assistance from country A. So this is one of the ways in which sort of non-governmental organisations have contributed. But we've also had really significant input from field research, and in particular, uh, groups of experts appointed by the United Nations Secretary General to examine, explore, look at violations of international arms embargoes. So they've created a, you know, a wealth of information about how the international arms trade works, and especially how unscrupulous brokers, illicit arms traders, and particular countries seek to you know, evade controls, hide what they're doing, to transfer weapons to rebel groups, transfer weapons to states that we might not want to receive weapons because they've been misused. And so there's a lot of information that's come through from them collecting documents, going into the field, also doing things like examining how UN peacekeeping operations provide weapons in Somalia, for example. So there's a lot of work that's undertaken by those people. Some of them have unfortunately had to leave the, the panels of experts, in some cases presenting inconvenient truths to particular governments, but they've gone into non-governmental organisations to provide another amount of important research and information that helped me at CIPRI, and also I think helps Martin at Oxfam with a lot of his work too. And the final source of information that I really wanted to flag up was, you know, journalists and the media, but also increasingly social media, where we can see, you know, having to wait for the annual report of the UK or the annual update from the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute. But we have, you know, Flickr, YouTube, Facebook, these sources that provide a lot of information about items that, when in the hands of an expert, can identify where they came from, probably the routes that were taken, and where they've been used. And in some cases, armed forces help us a lot with that, promoting what items they have, but so the rebel groups, and as we've seen with ISIS and with groups in Libya too, there's an awful lot of information out there provided by entities that have received weapons and that you can actually utilize and find out how they got there too. And as I said, there's a number of very interesting projects that have been undertaken with social media for these purposes. So to sort of wrap up my presentation, you know, proliferation of arms continues, from AK-47s to brand new technologies, you know, the, the human imagination in this field never ceases, it keeps on going. There's discussions now in the United Nations, uh, in Geneva, about autonomous weapons, systems where there's no humans in the loop. So we're talking about, I guess, the terminated generation of weapons too. But at the same time, you know, governments also seem to be reining back in terms of their transparency and openness. But the tools that are available to non-governmental organisations, researchers and universities, think tanks or other institutions, are becoming more and more prolific. It's much harder to hide, much harder to hide. And despite the constant refrain still of, you know, we can't reveal that information because of national security concerns, a lot more information is publicly available now 
And certainly, simply the challenge was not necessarily to find what's going on, but to simply sift through a huge amount of information. Thank you very much. reduce the impact 
of a conflict on civilians is to cut off the supply of ammunition or, or other munitions into that conflict. The, a, uh, a soldier or a unit of soldiers, an army, with ready access to large supplies of ammunition um, is, is much more likely to fight more intensely. They'll use ammunition um, in, a, in a very different way um, to a group of soldiers who don't know where the next um, you know, clip of bullets is coming from. Uh, so the, the supply of arms and the supply of ammunition is extremely important. Another thing we see um, is that in post-conflict situations, um, the, a supply of arms can completely undermine efforts at peace building. And I, I will talk a little bit later, a little bit about Burundi, but we're seeing now, um, very sadly, in the, in the wake of um, the, the president of Burundi deciding not to leave after two, two terms, but to stay on for a third, um, uh, a huge upsurge in violence there. Um, and really the breakdown of the peace process that ended the civil war back in 2005 um, and we're, we're seeing you know, the, the daily the security forces killing people um, but also um, a resurgence in particular there of um, grenade attacks on security forces by opposition um, uh, opposition militants um, and the grenades were a particular feature um, of, the, of the civil war in Burundi um, from the 1990s into the 2000s. Um, and uh, during, that, during that civil war, a grenade could be bought for as little as 50 cents um, on the streets of Bujumbura. Um, so <coughs> the, the, hum the human effects um, of the arms trade into conflict areas is, is, is particularly um, our concern. Um, back in 2007, which is where, where these figures are drawn from, uh, Oxfam released a report called Africa's Missing Billions. It was part of the campaign for the arms trade treaty at the time. Um, we're just starting the process of rewriting that report and updating it. Um, as part of the effort to ensure that the arms trade treaty is implemented properly because despite the fact the figures are now nearly 10 years old, um, even this year, um, someone like you know, Ban Ki-moon, UN Secretary General, is still quoting this report. Um, it's the most successful thing Oxfam's ever done in this area. Um, the, uh, the figure on the Millennium Development Goals um, actually, all of the countries that were in conflict or in post-conflict situation missed basically all of their targets. Um, and the, in all of those cases, the, the thing that singled them out from other countries um, was that, that factor of conflict. Um, the, the, you see, the, the uh, contrast between um, spending on arms and spending on peacekeeping is quite staggering. And the figure that we came to in the, the research that we did is that the, is the conflict, um, uh, conflict and uh, post-conflict armed violence in Africa removes something like $18 billion a year from Africa's economy. And that's, that's more than um, any aid 
that gets pumped into the continent. It's, it's a truly devastating effect. Um, and as you see, I mean, you can see there the statistics. I don't need to read them all. I would have done that. I've got the slide back. But um, you know, for, for a, a medical and health professional audience, um, all, of, all of these figures are um, you know, absolute, absolutely appalling, really. The, the, um, the effect um, on health of conflict and, of, and on armed violence um, is, is, is quite staggering. One of, the bit, one of the biggest problems um, that, that countries face, developing countries face, is the fact that injuries are more numerous than deaths. They're way more numerous. Usually about um, casualties in a typical conflict, something like 10%, 10 to 15% will be deaths, the rest will be injuries. Um, and the devastating part of that um, for these economies is that very often, these are people who are um, taken out of um, the economy. They can't contribute to the economy, to the well-being and livelihood of their families anymore. Um, but their families have to look after them. And there is very little in the way ever of, of state support for this. Um, so they're, they're <coughs> continuing suffering um, contributes to a further decline. Um, in family well-being. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll drop down a bit. And the, the refugee crisis that we see at the moment. There were refugee. There was a, a major refugee problem because of conflict in 2008, but it wasn't impacting on Europe. It didn't make the news. Um, there is still a major refugee conflict um, problem around the world because of conflict and because of armed violence. And for the most part, it doesn't affect Europe. But the tiny bit that does affect <coughs> Europe um, makes absolutely massive news and provokes a summit of African and European leaders pledging billions of, billions of euros to try and sort the problem out. But take, for example, the war in Syria, um, which is perhaps pushing a couple of hundred thousand people um, into, into Europe this year. Uh, it has displaced within Syria about <coughs> 10 million people and another four and a half million are refugees in Turkey, Lebanon, Jordan, so countries directly around Syria. The scale of the problem there is absolutely huge. Much different um, to, I mean the problem in Europe is big enough but it's orders of magnitude worse in Syria itself and around Syria. And the war in Syria is fueled more or less entirely um, by arms traded in um, either illicitly by intelligence services, by smuggling, or by countries like Russia and Iran, um, which are directly trading with, with the government. So the, 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 the refugee, refugee issues um, from Afghanistan through Syria across um, you know, sub-Saharan Africa and North Africa, very often fueled by conflict and armed violence, um, itself fueled by the irresponsible arms trade. So I said I'd mention I'd mention Burundi, and here we see a slide just the the, the loss of GDP that occurred 
during the um, the course of the Civil War, and uh, I, I visited Burundi um, about 18 months ago uh, for a week-long series of meetings and workshops about the Arms Trade Treaty and how Burundi could join the Arms Trade Treaty. And I have to say, I, w I was I was actually pleasantly surprised at the time. I, I really really didn't know what to expect. And since Burundi is, is one of the poorest countries in the world, but the capital, at least Bujumbura, um, you know, the lights were on all the time, it was safe to walk about even late at night, the security forces did not seem to me to be behaving in a particularly heavy-handed um, manner with, with the public. Um, on the surface, it all looked good. Um, and now it's collapsed. We're seeing um, two, three, four um, people being killed every day in clashes in the capital between security forces and, and opposition. And the violence is escalating. There is um, beginning to be evidence that um, the crossover between violence in the Eastern Congo and Burundi um, are having an impact on each other and that the arms, arms flows from Congo in, into Burundi uh, are possibly starting again. Um, the situation is very bad. Um, we have, from a, again from a medical health professional point of view, um, in, the, in the report we did in 2007, um, Burundi spent roughly $5 per year, or sorry, $5 per year per person on healthcare. <coughs> but in Burundi, the cost of a person wounded in armed violence um, were, the cost of treating a person, the average was $165. So the, the drain on national resources, um, the absorption of, of any positive healthcare measures by just dealing with the results of armed violence, you, you can see from that statistic, it's, it's pretty bad. Now, Yemen is a, a case at the moment, you really aren't seeing much about it on the news. Um, very little indeed, um, but the, the conflict in Yemen is um, pretty appalling, pretty dreadful. The situation in Yemen was not good to start with. Yemen um, has been for a long time one of the most heavily armed countries on earth, at least in terms of personal firearms, the kind of thing like the AK-47 that, that Paul showed. Um, rates of, of ownership um, by adults of, of personal firearms are very, very high. In fact, only in the United States is higher. Um, and Yemen also had um, you know, a large amount of um, Soviet-era military equipment um, and was at the same time an incredibly poor country. Oxfam has been working on water projects and, and other health projects in Yemen for 30 years. Even before the fighting started, um, the, the, the bombing at least by the, the, the Saudi-led coalition in March as the fighting started before that, but, but, but in March, even before then, out of Yemen's 24 million people, 10 million people were food insecure. Um, a huge number had no access to clean water. Um, the, the country was very poor indeed. Now those figures have just accelerated dramatically and it's because of the fighting. There is no other reason. Um, you see, 
We have people in need of protection and humanitarian assistance, 21.1 million out of 24 million. 15.2 um, million have no access to healthcare at all. Uh, even before um, the, the recent attack on um, several, several medical facilities, including an MSF hospital in Yemen, which was not reported in anything like the detail that the attack on the MSF hospital in Afghanistan was reported, 22 hospitals in, Ye in Yemen had been either directly bombed or a bomb had fallen within 100 yards. Um, causing significant damage. Um, so health healthcare is a serious problem. Um, more or less the entire country lack, now less a lacks access um, to safe water, and that's drinking water <coughs> for, for other purposes. Um, so why is this relevant to a workshop on the arms trade? Well, the arms trade is what's, um, the irresponsible end of the arms trade is what's causing this. Um, the British government knows perfectly well that the Saudi Air Force, um, which flies a lot of British aircraft, tornadoes and typhoons, uses a lot of British bombs, uh, Paveway 4s have been supplied this year, it's a laser-guided bomb. Um, they know perfectly well that the, the Saudis um, are committing war crimes on a daily basis. There are something like 100 to 150 airstrikes every day by the coalition in Yemen. Um, and this is in a situation where privately um, American and British mili military people have said that they were unable to identify a target to attack um, by May. Um, so the, 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 the rate of attack is, is very high um, and Britain has kept supplying bombs throughout um, the, this mission, Des despite the fact that Human Rights Watch, um, Amnesty International, and um, U official UN bodies on the ground in Yemen have said that there is a pattern of war crimes being committed on a daily basis, attacks on civilians, civilian targets, markets, um, the destruction um, of bridges, the destruction of um, hospitals, as I mentioned, um, uh, petrol stations, you name it, any kind of civilian infrastructure you can think of, right down to you know, UNESCO heritage sites, old, um, very old houses in um, the center of Sana'a have been, have been attacked. Um, and uh, as, as I'll come to under the ATT and British law, um, the British government should no longer be supplying arms to the Saudis, but they don't stop. But it's not only Britain. Um, Italy has continued um, with Germany to supply um, bombs as well to the Saudi Air Force. The Dutch, um, who have in the past supplied um, the United Arab Emirates um, with armoured vehicles and artillery, um, continue to supply the UAE with shells for the artillery pieces that they've sold in the past, despite the fact that the UAE is on the ground in Yemen and has attacked civilian targets. Um, the, on the, the other side of things, the Houthis, the rebel forces, um, the Iranians have um, continued to supply arms throughout, throughout the conflict um, at a lesser rate than Western countries have supplied to Saudi Arabia and other coalition figures, but still in significant numbers. Um, 
and uh, other military equipment, for example, the, the Americans had given the previous, the Yemeni government, $500 million worth of armored vehicles, small arms, light weapons, like anti-tank and anti-aircraft weapons. Those have all been seized by rebel groups and by Al-Qaeda um, in the, the east of the country. So the, the arms trade continues apace and fuels a war which is absolutely devastating um, what was already one of the poorest countries on earth. Um, so, the arms trade treaty. Um, Paul and I both worked <coughs> um, lobbying for the arms trade treaty to be adopted by the UN, which it was. Um, after a 10-year campaign, um, it was adopted in uh, April of 2013, and it entered into force in December um, last year, on, on Christmas Eve. Uh, I spent Christmas Eve in Al Jazeera and several other TV stations talking about the, um, talking about the treaty, much to my wife's delight as she struggled to deal with our kids while they <laughs> waited for Christmas. Um, but what does the treaty do? How does it seek to control the arms trade? Well, first of all, states have to, if they don't already, have a control list of items like the ones that Paul talked about. They have to have such a list. And it has to include everything from small arms and light weapons, rifles, up to battleships, <coughs> aircraft carriers, and everything in between, tanks, combat aircraft. There are gaps, but it's a fairly comprehensive list. Um, when they want to sell those arms to somebody else, they have to assess the risk of that sale. Now, there are some situations where sales are just prohibited. So, I take, for example, the, um, from the, the 90s, the Rwandan genocide. If the, the, um, the genocide there had asked for arms, um, there's an absolute prohibition on that. If you know human rights abuses, grave violations of human rights are being carried out, um, war crimes, then no sale. If you don't leap that hurdle, and it is, in the technical detail, quite a high hurdle to leap, then you go to the risk assessment, where you have to ask yourself, is there a risk that the arms I'm going to sell could be used to violate human rights or commit war crimes? So we've seen in Yemen that's, that's uh, a hurdle which, at the moment, the British government's policy should, the arms should have stopped. They haven't. We're working on that. Um, but that's, that's the next, next test. States are also obliged to look at the risk of diversion. It's where arms are sent to a user and then diverted off to an improper use. And one good example of that, we know some friends of ours did, a, did, a, did research on Iranian ammunition that was transferred to four states in Africa between 2007, I think, and 2010-11. By 2012, that ammunition was being used in 14 countries across Africa, North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and in only six cases was it being used by a state. In all the other cases, it was being used by insurgent groups. So the, the, the diversion of that, that ammunition was, was quite incredible, most likely fueled by corruption. Importantly, the treaty demands that states report on transfers of arms, or how they, how they are implementing the treaty, that's reports that they'll have to submit by this Christmas, and then transfers of arms every year. What have they imported? What have they exported? Um, 
And this is one of the, the parts of the treaty that will make the biggest difference because information is one of the things that we really lack. Um, we, we know about some countries, you know, the, the, the UK reports every quarter on its arms sales. Um, other countries re report reasonably often um, the same way. Some countries don't report at all. Um, China has not yet signed up for the ATT. It doesn't report what it's selling. But we can, the treaty can work for us if countries, for example, in Africa that are buying arms from China report on what they've bought. So we'd still know what China was trading, even if China isn't in the treaty. So the reporting and the transparency of the arms trade are vitally important. It'll give us information we've never had, or at least it'll add to the information that, that we have at the moment. And when we understand better the legitimate trade in arms, then we'll be able to understand also what is the illicit trade, where arms are being <coughs> made, um, in, a, in, in, in a much better way. Um, arms brokers, Paul, Paul mentioned briefly arms brokers and Victor Bout, the notorious Russian arms dealer who's in prison now in, in the United States, but um, brokers transfer arms um, from one country to another very often, um, you know, not working, oh, come back now, right? Okay. Um, very often not working, you know, like a British broker can be working in the Indian Ocean buying arms in Bulgaria and selling them in Malawi. Now, who's supposed to control that? Well, now, you know, Britain would control the broker and the, the movement of arms should be reported by Bulgaria and Malawi. We'll, we'll build up a picture of the arms trade we haven't ever had before. Um, yeah. So, the treaty is... I think to us, a, a vitally important um, tool in trying to control um, the global trade in arms, a trade which before was patchily controlled by different countries or at the level of the European Union, say, but had no global controls whatsoever. Um, at the level of um, developing <coughs> countries, we hope this will improve governance significantly. States will be obliged to um, control procurement of arms. They'll be obliged to understand what they're, what's going through their country, what they're buying and selling, and to be able to report on that. They'll be obliged to control the risk of diversion, um, so stockpile security. Um, there will be um, a series of measures that should improve the governance of the way arms are dealt with in countries where sometimes it's poor at the moment. Um, this is all a, a really big change. So what are, what are we doing and what do we need to do? Well, it's really important that this isn't just words on paper, that this, this treaty is taken seriously and that it's implemented robustly. So NGOs like Oxfam, people like Paul, are working hard to ensure that things like the reporting on the treaty that Paul works on is um, the best that it can possibly be. Um, Oxfam is working with um, governments in Africa, um, Mali just this week, to look at how they can implement the treaty properly at a national level and work with countries in their region to make sure it happens as well. 
And then very importantly, when countries do deals that are at, at best dubious under this treaty, it needs to be challenged. Um, so Oxfam with other NGOs in Britain is seeking legal advice at the moment with a view to what action can be taken to stop the British government supplying Saudi Arabia with bombs that are being dropped on Yemen. And that, that kind of thing, um, as well as you know, straightforward political advocacy, is the sort of thing that's <coughs> necessary to make sure this treaty really works, because there, there is a danger that it'll just be words on paper and the arms industry will carry on in the way it always has. Um, but um, with <coughs> some goodwill and some hard work, we hope it won't be. But thank you. So we'll take questions. Um, I mean, explicitly in the treaty, states did not want, many states in particular, major exporting states, did not want any sort of oversight body that would be identifying that's not in line with the provisions of the treaty. And therefore, I think the hope is that through the reporting and the regular conference of the states' parties, that is the forum through which states <coughs> would be questioned on their application of uh, treaty provisions with regard to risk assessment and the prohibitions. There'll obviously also be a lot of work carried out by civil society, and in particular the Arms Trade Treaty Monitor, to highlight these cases and to encourage states' parties to say, no, this is not in line with what we expect. In some cases, but it'll probably be cases which don't involve um, friends of the UK, the US, etc. There have there's a precedent of states being referred to the Security Council and being having sanctions imposed on them, arms embargoes and other restrictions related to, to illicit transfers, but, but that's a limited body of work. But it, there's a precedent there with the case of Liberia and Eritrea, that Liberia and Eritrea, that where that's been used, but that wouldn't necessarily be through the arms trade treaty, but that could be a forum in which this information is put forward and questions could be raised about it. You know, we don't believe that you're in line with uh, fair in treaty implementation, but there's no mechanism that exists to, to kick people out for, for not abiding by those provisions, unfortunately. Uh, I think, just, just to add briefly to that, I mean, nobody thinks that this will be a quick and easy process. We all think that this will be um, a, a question of um, working at a variety of levels, from you know, the national level upwards, um, over many years, to look at the norm of international law that's, or the norms of international law that are enshrined in this treaty, and um, 
really pushing those through through advocacy, through debate. Um, Sorry. <laughs> um, and the, the, the effects of the treaty will be um, slow, steady, gradual, but will we'll build over time. Yeah. Um, I was wondering how you would incorporate non-state actors in having legitimate power in terms of, so arms deals might involve, or often involve, people who are not the legitimate state and, and they would want a buy-in presumably to, to justify, to say what is a legitimate war and what is a legitimate buy-in, so how would that Okay, so how are non-state actors dealt with? This will be interesting, we should probably both answer this and see if, if, if our answers coincide. You begin then. Um, I'll go first. Uh, <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, so, during the course of the negotiation of the treaty, and the, the treaty does not specifically deal with non-state actors. What it deals with is transfers of arms. Um, during the course of the negotiation of the treaty, this was a problem that a lot of people talked about a lot, was it was hotly and hotly debated. Um, one, of the, one of the discussions that <coughs> I had with uh, delegates from countries from the Arab League was about Palestine. And they were saying, you know, it's, it's, there can't be a prohibition on the transfer of arms to Palestinians because they have a right of resistance and they're fighting Israel, and I said that's that's fine. As far as I can see, that's fine. If you can say in your national law that transferring arms to a Palestinian resistance group is in accordance with your law, you're prepared to report on that transfer. You're you know, you're prepared to treat it as any other transfer. Then the treaty allows for that. Um, and, and, and that's true, and the, the, the same is true of um, you know, American transfers of arms, say, to contractors, military contractors in Afghanistan. Um, if they think they can justify those transfers, then put them out there in public and we'll argue about it. It's a very hard one. Um, and it, it's, it's not something that was very, very well or very tidily resolved at all. Um, I mean, for me personally, it was, it was a difficult one. You know, I'm old enough that back in the 1980s, um, part of the anti-apartheid movement and, and activities around that, I actually helped raise, raise arms for money for the ANC. And you know, how would that be captured by this treaty? Well, I don't know is the answer. But it's not tidy, it's not easy, and it's something we'll have to work on for years to come. Uh, yeah, as, as, Mark, as Martin said, it was a, actually quite a hotly top, hot topic in the discussions around the arms trade treaty. And it, it had been on UN processes around the small arms and like weapons issue as well. So, you know, this has been a long standing issue to be discussed in terms of is it legitimate to supply arms to non state actors when they don't have permission? From the sort of national authority of the states that they're located to import those arms. And what you did have in the late 90s was efforts led by Canada to try and establish a, a sort of a norm or provisions that would sort of prohibit 
such transfers. And a lot of European states followed that, and the European Union started to promote that in its own small arms like weapons actions too. But through the arms trade treaty process, and I think you know, it's not just the, the states of the, of the Middle East, but also the US was particularly vocal on the red line of not including a prohibition on transfers to non state actors. One area was because in the US, the, the argument of the NRA, but the other one was exactly of the case that, that Martin's mentioned in Palestine. The other precedent was of supplies to Bosniaks in the Yugoslav uh, conflict. And we also see it now in discussions around Libya and Syria, where there's questions about the legitimacy of the regime that's in power. Um, and if we go back to 2011, I think you know, France, which has been also a big proponent of the arms trade treaty, supplied weapons to non-state actors that were facing Gaddafi and justified it and was quite open, although it was called out on it, it was open that we supply these on the following grounds. So as Martin said, the most we can hope for is that the mechanism permits transparency in an area where there's normally um, not a great deal of transparency in order to fusion. So I contrast the actions of France with Russia, which in the arms trade treaty said we must prohibit transfers to non-state actors, but of course, many allegations have been raised about the actions of Russia in Ukraine, in particular Crimea and supplies of weapons there. So you're getting you know, elements of Cold War redux, as Martin referred to, but also the effort to try and continue with this norm of trying to establish a, you know, a threshold of where we say supplies should not be, uh, weapons should not be supplied to non-state actors because of uh, instability, but also recognizing those situations in which you know, the actions of the government are so abhorrent and the US refers to it almost as like a, a last resort. We've exhausted all of the possibilities, so now we'll turn to supplying arms. My concern is that a number of states in the North turn to that option, and also in the South, turn to that option not as a last resort, but as a means of proxy warfare interfering in the, in the affairs of other states and, and destabilizing and causing uh, a considerable amount of harm. So that's, that, that's where it's a, it's a challenging political issue. And that hot potato, I think, will continue um, through discussions both in the Small Arms Forum and in the Arms Trade Treaty. Thank you. Yeah. Hi. Um, so you talked about um, a lot about responsible or irresponsible actors, and you defined irresponsible actors as people who would sell arms to people who would um, commit war crimes or um, or um, abuse human rights in some way. Um, and I was wondering. If if you could give any examples of how you would describe a war that doesn't abuse human rights? <laughs> no, that's, that's a very good point. I mean, it's, it's, it's very, very hard to do. Um, the, one, of the, one of the red lines for states, all states, um, during the negotiation of the Arms Trade Treaty was that under the UN Charter, states have a right of self-defense. So, some, some states um, you know, have, have, have taken from that um, an inherent right to buy arms you know, whenever they like and however they like. Um, but it is quite, it is quite clear um, in the, it, it is quite clear in the treaty that, you know, that, that there are some principles of international human rights law and international humanitarian law to which arms trade arms trades transfers now have to be submitted and the question to ask really is 
is is this are the states involved? Is the state involved making a you know a good faith effort to train its security personnel in the in the basics of those laws? Are they making a good faith effort? You know, if they're engaged in a conflict, to try and uphold those laws, um, or as we see at the moment in Yemen, are they just completely ignoring them? And very often, it's 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 not well. It's not easy, but it can you can tell the difference. At least you you can tell the difference between something like the Saudi action in Yemen, which is you know, flagrantly breaching international law on a daily basis, um, and and other conflicts where you know, the there will be some. There are always going to be some of these problems, um, but um, you know, people are people are at least trying. It's just uh, well, I was just in the, the gender session last, mm. um, and they're talking a lot about um, soldiers in Afghanistan and Iraq um, sexually abusing <coughs> things like that. So it seems to me that there isn't ever a war that that doesn't abuse human rights in some way. I, I guess my, my concern with the way the arms trade treaty deals with this is that the threshold set in Article 6 with regard to war crimes and genocide is incredibly high. And the provisions on violations regarding international humanitarian law, uh, gender-based violence and human rights are part of a package which some states interpret as a balancing act whereby you, you, you could argue supplying these weapons to the forces in Afghanistan contributes to international peace and security and when weighed against if I don't supply them things would be much worse and that's the unfortunate balancing act which I think the arms trade treaty enables in a way that previously states might have been um, not using that balancing act but there seems to be and I think Yemen is a case where it's quite interesting where states that previously would have struggled especially in Europe to say it's fine to supply in this under these circumstances now Article 7 of the Arms Trade Treaty actually potentially gives them that balancing act. Uh, of interest for me has been looking at issues like supplies to forces ranged against ISIS. And very often in those cases, you know, the, the Kurdish security forces do not have a fantastic record on human rights. They don't have training that enables them to be seen as good guys, but they're seen as an effective force against the advance of ISIS. And the justification to supply them is exactly in that, this case, despite the fact there's very high risk of diversion of those arms ending up in hands of others and of those people who have actually been directly supplied potentially misusing those items and causing human rights abuses too. So it's, I mean, the thing with the arms trade is it always gets into that strategic area as well as <coughs> human rights and, and, and economics. But I think what we see is the arms trade treaty has advanced an agenda which, you know, we wouldn't have had so much in the 80s or early 90s. And as Martin said, you know, if you're in it for the long game, we might not be seeing the benefits now, but potentially we can continue to build that norm and establish a much higher threshold. Uh, sorry, much lower threshold into which we say this is unacceptable than where we currently stand. Uh, just, just to add, I think you know, if, as as an NGO like Oxfam, you know, we think the bar should be set up here for a sale. Most governments think it should be set down here, and our job is to gradually push that up. I mean, it's it's a really it's 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 a moral dilemma, and it's difficult. Absolutely. I, I suspect the only just war is the war in which your own country is involved. On <laughs> <laughs> a more serious question, um, can, you, can you make a comment on the sale of diamonds? <coughs> a few years ago, we were almost equated with, with uh, 
set of arguments in terms of, of the human of the, of the abuse that was, was involved in. Is that, is that still the case? I mean, it's it's something that we not just not just diamonds, but also other other items looked at in the context of the United Nations sanctions, and the diamonds more as a means of facilitating and enabling the purchase of equipment, mercenaries, and fighting forces in the DRC, as well as previously in Angola and Liberia and Sierra Leone. I guess that you know those restrictions can continue, and you have Kimberley certification trying to address those kind of issues, um, and other commodities like timber, I believe also <coughs> in terms of the items and other natural resources that can be clearly linked with, with, with conflicts. Um, but in terms of following the agenda, I don't do it so much. And, and because of the countries that are involved uh, and sort of named in those diamonds, where, where diamonds have been linked to procurement of weapons, um, not being at the top of the agenda of the list of countries that, that Martin would be focused on, it doesn't seem to be as prominent now as before. But you do have initiatives to do with extractive industries that try and loosen those links, and certainly still in parts of the Eastern DRC, um, artisanal mining more generally is still believed to be you know, a contributing factor towards um, Sobels and, and other you know, government forces and non-government forces and the fuzzy line between them in terms of fighting for territory and, and also facilitating uh, continuing low-level uh, conflicts and, and armed violence. Yeah, um, do you have anything to say on uh, production as well as Sorry, could you? Do you have anything to say on production as well as trade? Because without production, you don't have a trade group. Is it legitimate for countries which uphold to high standards to be producing endless amounts of things? I, 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 from a, a personal point of view, there's too much. Um, and I, you know, I, don't think that would be problematic for Oxfam either. But um, I, one one of the things that um, I think a, a properly and strongly regulated arms trade can help help to deal with is the spread of production. And I think one of the reasons that Oxfam you know, doesn't uh, go along with all the positions of the campaign against the arms trade is. Um, that we think if, if the arms trade per se could be cut off completely, that that would lead to a huge spread in production um, across the world. The countries that were unable to buy arms would try and produce them, um, and that would increase the diversion of resources from, from peaceful uses to the military. But um, no, the, the, the treaty doesn't talk particularly or specifically about production. I mean, I guess from my perspective, as I mentioned, the concern is the proliferation of the means to produce um, the, the overproduction and the ways in which certain countries, in particular this one, there's an emphasis on export of items and production for export, not just solely for national defence, is a concern and you see it across Europe. At the same time, I'm concerned that you know companies like Lockheed Martin that diversify and don't just produce arms but also suck up government money in other ways, my concern is also that if those companies start to look at other ways and they've been very successful at getting government funding and government resources and know how to play that system and the results of what happens when they um, feed into other service delivery is extremely worrying. So that, that's my concern. In a sense, you know, I don't want them to produce more but I'm wary that where else could they go and offer their services. It's just a, 
that's the concern for me, I guess, in terms of both ways of, I don't want them producing more, but I'm worried that if there's restrictions, they will look for, for other ways of accessing government funding, and that is primarily how they you know, make a living and make a profit, despite the fact they're supposed to be commercial enterprises. Hi, um, you mentioned earlier that the UK had dropped off the top five farms. I was wondering if you can elaborate on that. Is it because the change in the market? Because um, I know a few years ago, you had a 15% market share, around about that. Um, so can you explain a bit more about how that market's changed? Okay, there's, there's always several <laughs> several um, elements to this. One has been the dramatic increase in China's exports. So although, you know, as Martin noted, they're not the most transparent exporter, they've concluded some pretty significant deals with countries in, in, in Asia recently, but for quite sophisticated technology in large quantities, that's meant they've leapfrogged the UK and a number of suppliers. Um, France has also secured a number of quite significant deals in recent years that's also strengthening its position. I guess with regards to the UK, one of the challenges with the Cypri approach also is that it only looks at certain types of equipment that are you know, older um, types of, of technologies in the main. And the UK is cutting edge in certain areas, and the same goes with Israel actually for Cypri, is not always accounted for in the way that Cypri does its measurements. So the monitoring and the question of what is the arms trade that I mentioned at the beginning, that, that poses the challenge in the UK's um, sort of, I guess, traditional industries and traditional exports don't always, you know, fit in the Cypri model, but the newer items don't always uh, come through. And the fact that the UK has missed out on a number of big deals in recent years too, um, at the expense of other countries. So there's a, you know, constellation of factors that you could talk about there. Um, but also, I mean, Germany's still in the top five, but it's also had a significant decline um, as a number of sort of larger systems it's exported at. Um, Coming to the, coming to an end, those deals are coming to an end, and again, there's pressure in Germany to be more flexible with regards to whom is a you know eligible recipient of conventional weapons. So that's what we've been monitoring sort of across Europe. Is that the pressure now that you're seeing with these declines will probably lead to them becoming much more aggressive in terms of the way they export, the opportunities that they provide to support those exports. And I, I mean, I think that unfortunately we'll see that with the UK that. It's going to be seeking to, to, to increase its share and increase the volume of exports. Yeah. Uh, just, can uh, uh, arms traders get around the uh, treaty by just setting up subsidiaries and, and uh, mm -hmm. forming a new factory in the country to which they want to supply arms? That happened really good. Um. Actually, I'm not sure. <laughs> no, I think is the answer. I mean, if the countries, uh, I mean, take, I mean, for example, Germany has a facility in Saudi Arabia producing um, rifles for the Saudi military. Um, now, <coughs> that transfer of technology and the, the still has to be licensed by the German government. Um, so, um, in that in that sense, no. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. You talked a few minutes ago about sanctions for a recipient, or, or possible sanctions for a recipient, but are there, do we think that there are genuinely any sanctions that could be employed against Russia or China, for example, as the exporter? And to that extent, does the treaty have teeth? 
well, I mean, we already have in the European Union an arms embargo imposed on both of those countries. So there's an arms embargo imposed on China by European Union member states and also on Russia. And in the case of China, that's limited its access to advanced technologies, which meant that for much of the period when you know, it's, it's been a major importer and become an exporter, that's based primarily on imports from Russia. So you had a period where Russia's rise as an exporter was very much influenced by Chinese procurement and, and imports. And so in terms of the level of technology, that's had an impact. In terms of Russia, in recent years, with regard to its modernization drive, there were several major contracts concluded with a number of European suppliers. The most famous one has been the Mistral ships with France, which was cancelled. But probably more significantly have been transfers of technology and know-how, which are now also being restricted. And that is having an impact in terms of future generations of Russian equipment and technology because of the brain drain they've faced since the end of the, of the Cold War. So it's slowly, but it is having an impact in terms of their military capabilities. And there's been some suggestions that certain players in Russia you know, are looking at this. And it, it, it is having an impact probably more than you know, other forms of sanctions <coughs> being imposed on Russia. Um, but with regards to China, that there have been other ways that they've been able to access technology and, and seek to, to increase, although it started off at a much lower technological base um, com compared with Russia. Perhaps even in terms of the small arms that are leaking out of Russia and China, is there anything, is there anything that can be done about that? The only way that it can be affected is with regards to dialogues with some of their partners. But unfortunately, many of their partners are countries with, that have problematic or difficult relations with, with, with countries that we might, we might want to have um, seeking to put pressure on them. So I mean, that's one of the things that often gets stated by Russia, especially in the 1990s, was you know, we're left with the countries with poor human rights records. That's why we supply them. I don't, I don't believe that, but that's a discourse that they use at various stages. And there are some interesting ways sometimes to, to stop things happening. And one of the things we were able to do back in 2012, um, Amnesty identified a ship going from northern Russia with attack helicopters to Syria. Um, and the insurance, the, the, the insurance for that ship had been provided <coughs> through Lloyds of London. And so the the, that shouldn't have happened, yeah. that, that, and the, when we contacted the government about it, we as a group of NGOs, the government very quickly informed the insurance company that that shouldn't have happened, and all insurance companies stopped doing that. The insurance for that ship was cancelled, and it went back to Russia. Now, I'm pretty certain, although we don't actually know, that those attack helicopters yeah. yeah, made it by a different route, and the Russian government started providing insurance for their their ships after that, and using different routes. And, um, so, you know, sometimes you can stop things. Sometimes it's not entirely effective. There's also a role in which um, states don't like to use loose face in front of each other. And one particularly notable example, because it involves China, um, was a sale last year of. Um, by the Chinese company Narinko of arms to South Sudan, you know, a desperately poor country in the middle of a civil war, um, $40 million worth of arms. And when that news broke, 
the international condemnation was such that the Chinese government turned around and said Norinco had done that on its own. They had gone through this complete crap. But, um, but that's what they said. And that Norinco would no longer be supplying arms, no Chinese company would be supplying arms to South Sudan um, while the war went on. And so, so embarrassment can work sometimes. I mean, it, it, yeah, I was going to say, I think embarrassment between the two. I thought when you were mentioning ships, you were going to mention the episode where China was going to, was going to supply um, rifles to Zimbabwe in the lead up to an election where there were concerns that they'd be misused against the population and South African trade unions said we're not loading these items from this ship. And again, it, you know, the items probably arrived by another route, but there have been ways in which you know, civil society and trade union action has at least delayed or, or held up. But of the two states, China is a bit more cautious with regard to its image than I think Russia would be and is at the moment, at least. I see we've got several more questions, but I'm afraid we need to wrap it up. I've been, um, sorry? Shall we take, just really quickly, let's take all the questions we've got together and we'll see what we can do to answer them. So, so this is, uh, the, a lot of the military forces in the past were controlled by nation states, but now we're going more and more to private security firms. Will a private security firm be able to just buy their weapon in, in England and then go and work in South Africa? Will that affect something? Okay. Uh, up the back, there was another question. Uh, yeah, so I just, sorry. Um, I think obviously the treaty obviously has some really good things about it, but I think isn't there a, a possibility of it being room for abuse and almost a bit of a neo-colonialism? I just think that, like, you know, we can. The Western powers can kind of legitimise their own wars and then delegitimise other wars. And I just think that could possibly be a bit worrying. And the fact that China isn't even part of it and they're what the third producer in the world of arms. And um, is there an appetite to punish previous perpetrators of um, arms traders that are thinking of France when they supplied arms during the Rwanda genocide? knowing full well there was a genocide going on. Um, and yeah, just touching on that, I mean, unless the developed Western world, unless those countries are being held to account, um, is there a chance of this just becoming about, you guys are the bad guys and we're just going to implement all these rules? Really, really nicely what I want to ask, but I want to add, how do you feel about wars becoming for profit with the introduction of private military companies? Uh, yeah, okay. Besides the industry of production. Um, I'll, I'll say a couple of things, then I'll hand over to Paul, and then we'll be done. Um, so, I mean, I, I think that um, there, is, is there a risk of the, the, the treaty sort of becoming a neo-colonial venture, and you know, some wars are good wars, others are bad wars? Um, I think that, that that could be a danger, but it's something that we can work around. And one of the reasons I'm confident about that is that you know, the vast majority of African countries um, are, you know, have been in the, the lead on this treaty. They are very enthusiastic about it. They want to make it work, and they see it or at least a lot of them see it as a mechanism by which um, they can actually stop those kinds of um, 
neo-colonial actions and the use of their their territory as a as a you know, proxy battlegrounds between people or even groups within um, their countries, but you're being used in that way, and they see it as a way of taking control. Um, I think it also depends <coughs> a lot um, on those of us who have something invested in this treaty to 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 make it work in a a, a better way. And I mean, it's. It is one of the things, actually, that you know, certainly the UK government and I know other Western governments really, really hate is that, you know, compared, say, to Russia, you know, we can't take effective action against Russia domestically. In in the UK, we can. You know, if we can't get action we want through Parliament, we can sue them. <laughs> so we, we have mechanisms that are available to us to stop the treaty being used in that way. Um, in terms of going back and punishing past misdeeds, I'm afraid not. And that's, that's not something that, that I mean, is allowed for either in this treaty or you know, if, if prosecutions can be raised in other ways for, for actions, then, then yes, but not through the mechanism of this treaty. Um, Okay, I'll, I'll address the, the private security company questions then. Um, so different, different countries have different approaches with regard to whether they actually permit private security companies and private military companies to operate uh, or be registered in their territories. Uh, the UK is one of the more laissez-faire countries towards this, as, as I'm sure you'll be surprised to learn. Um, and in particular, I won't talk about land-based, but we did some work last year on maritime private security companies, in particular those operating in the uh, the Indian Ocean and the fantastic case of the UK's licensing authorities authorising the supply of more than 100,000 uh, small arms and light weapons items when there are estimates there are only about 15,000 private security guards operating in that territory uh, was flagged up in uh, Parliament and they didn't even have records of whether those items had been shipped or not. When they investigated it, only about 5,000 had been shipped, many of them involving brokers and dealers. Um, and also last year we had the fantastic case of one of the top five largest maritime private security companies folding overnight and leaving their guards and their weapons, in some cases on floating armories. That's a boat that just sits out at sea where these items are, 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 de are deposited and relying on the goodwill of other private security companies to you know, take them back ashore, um, employ them. So it's, it's a worrying case and there's a lot of very, very concerning anecdotes out there. But there is some attention being brought to this issue. Um, and on land as well, I mean, it's not just many of these private security companies as recipients, but also involved in um, transfers as well, and some of them registering as entities to deal in, in weapons. There's a code of conduct called the Montreux document they've adopted, but I mean, you know, I think that the, the response of the gentleman at the front here shows that, you know, how many people th think of that and the implementation and the monitoring of it. So, you know, it's, a, it's an area of concern and one to, to, to certainly to focus upon. Um, and this country is one way, you know, there's, there's right areas for discussion, uh, and the US is another. Thank you. Okay, well, I'm afraid we have to leave it there, but thank you all very much for coming along. And Thank you very much for that fantastic speech and sorry to have to cut down some of your um, really interesting questions. Um, now we have a bit of scheduled break time. Um, I have been told that there is a particularly delicious um, dinner being served downstairs in the basement, if you would like it, and um, for a small charge. And there's also the keynote speech at 6.30.
um, and that's in the main auditorium where you have the first speech of the morning. We'll bring the lights. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Thank you.